this morning, as I mentioned to you, um, we had originally had, I had thought in my mind we were going to pray, and uh, we're, we are praying. But it is a special week, and um, you know, it, I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning and, and think, uh, let's talk about the Reformation, <laughs> right? But um, Saturday, October 31st is a very important day. Uh, no, kids are not here, but no, it's not just Halloween, right? Uh, but rather, it is Reformation Day, and, and usually we would probably have a service for uh, the Reformation and all that it meant for us Protestants here. Um, and I'm sure you know, October 31st, 1517, was when Martin Luther plastered his 95 points, 95 theses on the Church of Wittenberg, and he pronounced two central beliefs, that the Bible is central to all religious authority, and that humans can only achieve salvation through faith and not in their deeds. Now, very basic, isn't it? Very, I mean, we, we, get, we get that now. That's what we're meeting here every Sunday. But what, what we're going to do, and, and I had prayed about you know, six months ago that we could do here this morning, is that we can take a look back before we move forward. I think there's so much misunderstanding about the Reformation because of the characters that make up the Reformation, right? You have a guy like Luther, it's pretty nuts, okay? Who says some really mean things, really horrible anti-Semitic things. You have guys like Calvin, right, who would... Uh, some people would say that he murders some people, or people were murdered under his authority. Uh, you had guys like John Knox, you know, later on that, that you know, started the Presbyterian Church, and, and he did some wild things as well. There's so much stuff that can get to you, and we miss the main point of the Reformation. What we're going to do this morning is we're going we're gonna to go back a little bit to move forward uh, this morning. And the, and the sermon uh, this morning is entitled, A Call to Gospel Confidence. A call to gospel confidence. I'm going to briefly mention some Luther, briefly mention some background, but really at the end, it's what the Reformation produced, what the Reformation actually did to people, and how it shaped life even today in much in the way we, our churches, preach, the way, it doesn't matter what denomination it is. If you're a Protestant, much, much of the reason why we are the way we are, that we stand on biblical beliefs, has to do with this specific time in history. And so, uh, and so I think it's important for us to begin, before we pray for the sermon, to give you just three reasons why I think the church should be speaking more about this time in, in history. And again, we would have preached about it next week, but with the election, I pushed it back to this Sunday. So, and it is this. Let me, let me give you just three reasons. One, in the Reformation, we find that the gospel always prevails in opposition. In the Reformation, we find that the gospel always, always wins in opposition. Now, I'm not saying people always win, because you're going to see reason number two. But the gospel is like a wrecking ball that smashes entire buildings. And there's a reason for this. It's not just that it's kind of a cool message, because it's really not. People don't like to hear the gospel, but it is because of this. It is because the gospel, the good news of Christ, is bound up in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is ultimately leads us to a relationship with Christ. Mark 1, uh, verse 1 says, the beginning, and he talks about the, the gospel, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Jesus in the gospel. He begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't say the beginning of the gospel of what I want to hear, but it's the gospel of a person. It's the good news of the person of Christ. And so what the Reformation did is that it began not just to give you a message, but it began to present to you a relationship with a person, a relationship with the person of Christ. The gospel does not just speak of God's atoning work, 
Not just salvation through repentance. Not just grace and amen for those things. But it speaks of an eternal relationship that we can have with the second person of the Trinity. Isn't that good news for us this morning? That we have an advocate. That we have a friend. And so the Reformation, if you trace back at all that they wrote, these reformers, this is what you're going to find. Relationship with Jesus. A love for Christ. An understanding that rules and regulations and even the message of the gospel has no power outside of relationship. That outside a one-on-one, life-on-life with Christ, growing in the likeness of Christ, there is nothing to be had of the gospel. So we need to study the Reformation because, here's why, because man-made structures always raise up in trying to put Jesus on the side. Every single day, there's things that come up that make Jesus smaller, smaller, less and less important. Yes, we can say what the gospel is, and we can come to church, and we can really pray really good on a microphone, but the relationship is not there. The Reformation was an awakening to to a relationship with Christ. And so we mask the gospel with works-based religion. And so important the, the gospel prevailed in opposition by opening and opening up a relationship with christ uh, Two, the reformation bo- uh, uh, brought to the forefront the theology of suffering okay now when we say that the gospel prevails it prevailed on the backs of men who gave their lives to take this gospel where no one desired to hear it go turn with me to first peter chapter four uh, these verses were often quoted by these reformers. First Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. See, the gospel prevails through suffering. Okay, hear that and hear that now. The gospel prevails through suffering. Now, I think that, that sounds really off, right? Uh, because for the last 100, 200 plus years in this country, we've, we've enjoyed religious freedom for a good deal. But the Reformation, this, this period in time of church history, actually speaks to us. That our spiritual life, that the growth in the gospel happens primarily through martyrdom, death, pilgrimage, and suffering. This is what Peter reminds us of in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised. He's speaking to uh, exiles here, who are exiled Christians. Do not uh, be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. When you look at the life of William Tyndale, when you look at the life of Jan Hus, when you look at guys uh, in, deep, deep in the Reformation, most of these men died to see the gospel flourish. We live today upon the death of many men in much blood. And so far from the triumphant feel-good theology view of the church today, you know, I just, saw, I just saw a preacher that had, uh, and I don't mean to make fun, but it is kind of funny. Uh, I saw a preacher that had a eco type, eco, echo, echo, echo dot type of device, I don't know what that is, echo dot device where you press a button and then he gives you positive messages for your day. Okay, it said something like 3,000 sermons to make you feel good every morning. And every message was like, you're a champion. You have victory today. You're never going to fail. Here's what the Reformation was doing. This was saying, you want the gospel to go forth, lay your life down and die. Now that is way different than when we live. It's very uncomfortable. 
But what they demonstrated is that to subscribe to Scripture alone, to grace alone, for the glory of God alone, meant persecution alone, suffering alone, and martyrdom alone. Now, I know it's intense, brothers and sisters, but this is why we're going back. Because when we look at these men, you see the mess that they made of their lives, the weakness of their lives, but then you see the lives that they gave for the sake of the gospel. So that, that's two, that he brought to the forefront the theology of suffering. Number three, lastly, the Reformation challenges us to look back and ask this to ourselves. Are we reforming? Is the church still reforming? Are we still Protestant? Or are we something else? Theologian in the 1920s named uh, uh, Gretchen Machen said that today there's a, uh, well back then in the 20s, there was a movement called liberalism. Back then there was only one Presbyterian church and then it began to split. And the split was basically upon the authority and the inerrancy of scripture. And he would make the argument that any other religion, any other faith that does not see the scriptures as inerrant is an entirely different religion. It's not a sect of Christianity. It's not a denomination. It's false Christianity. Now picture you say that <laughs> on a pulpit Sunday to Sunday. You won't have people coming to your church, right? Well, the, the challenge that the Reformation gives us is, are we reforming? Are we, and I don't mean just growth, but are we reforming into what the Scripture teaches? In 1674, Dutchman, Jesutus Lodestein, wrote a book and a devotional where he wrote this, that the church is reformed, but is also always reforming according to the Word of God. Let me give you the difference here, a, a, a word picture here. There's a difference between progress and reforming. Progress moves you forward, doesn't it? We live in a, if I could say, you know, candidly here, we live in a progressive culture. We're moving forward and man is becoming what? Better, right? We're smarter, we're more brilliant. Here's where the culture is going. The, the culture is progressive. Here's what reforming means. Reforming goes backwards. But you know where it goes backwards to? It goes this way. It goes back to the scripture. Is our society matching with Scripture? Is our marriage matching? Are we reforming into the likeness of Scripture? And we have a choice whether or not to progress in the way of the culture or reform in the way of the Scripture. You guys with me? And so we have a duty as people to ask ourselves, are we, as he, as, as he Jodas says, are we semper reformada? Semper reformada, right? It's Latin for always reforming. Okay, meaning the lives and practices of God's people need reformation. So when you say reformed, when you say reformation, be cautious not to get caught up in theological ideals or beliefs. Reformation simply means that we're not static people, but we keep reforming, looking back at the scripture and saying, I need to change. I need to move forward in Christ. Theologian Michael Horton said this, reformed is not only to be biblical, to be biblical is to be reformed. Now, there's a lot more we could say about that word reform. But the goal is this, this morning, is I want to just lay out just very briefly three things. The, the road to the Reformation, the rebel of the Reformation, Martin, a little bit of Martin Luther. And lastly, the result of the Reformation. And that's where uh, our, our sermon really is going to... It's going to really come together. And it is a call to gospel confidence that the result of the Reformation created a new type of people that primarily means protestation. We protest against anything that's not in Scripture. And so that's where we're going this morning. So let me pray. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that your word um, may uh, bring life to us as we 
uh, read and as we open up uh, just our minds to hear about this time in church history, Lord, that um, we may truly be Protestant, that we may be confident in the gospel that you've given us in our relationship with Christ to give our lives for the sake of the next reformation, the next movement of revival. Lord, that to be biblical is to be reformed, and to be reformed is to be biblical. Father, we pray this morning that we may surrender to your voice and that you alone, O Lord, may have the glory, the honor, and praise. And the church said, Amen. Amen. And so let me, let me begin with a picture. And listen, I'm not very creative, so this took me some time, okay? Let me be a little creative with you, but I want you to picture with me noisy streets. Okay, picture with me, uh, if you've been to Europe, those cobblestone streets, maybe just picture something like that. Picture salesmen shouting uh, out their items in a marketplace, First Street, Second Street, it's all over the place, um, where you can purchase a, a couple of things. A cut of fabric from, from Jesus' swaddling cloth when he was a baby. In the other corner, you could buy a strand of straw from the manger. In the other corner, you could buy a piece of gold from the wise men. You could buy some myrrh that the actual three wise men had. You could buy some of the bread that was there at the Last Supper. Okay? Don't get too excited. Okay? What about a thorn from the crown of Jesus when he was crucified? You want to buy that? All right. Just go to the corner. It's, all, it's, it's available to you. To top it all off, do you want a piece of stone of the stone when Jesus was standing when he ascended to the Father in heaven? You want some of that stone? We have that available to you. That's not all. If you go to St. Mary's Street, right, and the other side of the, of, of the street, there's three, three pieces of her cloth that she wore um, on the day of Jesus' death. There's some, seven pieces, uh, as one writer put it, there the veil that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Okay, now, it's kind of funny and bizarre, and it's kind of weird, and you're looking at these pictures. seems like a scary movie. Um, these were not just cool little things to buy in the Middle Ages. But they actually had spiritual value. When you think about the road to the Reformation, we don't just begin with people. Okay? Think, I want you to think about this. Even historians will tell you this. You don't start with history with people. You start with context, right? You don't start with just, this person did bad. This is a bad person. Don't ever, no, no. Look at the context of they were in. And so these were not really cool things, but they had spiritual value. If you had money, you would purchase one of these things, and they called it uh, indulgences, okay, which in Latin means permits. By purchasing an indulgence, an individual, uh, I'm sorry, these were called relics. These are called relics. Along with a relic, you would buy an indulgence. An indulgence was a certificate, which would purchase you a, a reduced length and severe, and of severity and punishment if you went to hell. Okay, that in, in other words, if you wanted to have payment for your sin, you would buy Jesus' tooth, okay, and you would put it in your house, and then you would buy an indulgence, a, a permit that told you that you are safe from hell. What sin did you commit? Adultery. Just buy an indulgence. Did you steal? Just buy an indulgence. There was an indulgence available for every type of sin in the 16th century and uh, medieval ages. This was not just for you. What about your mom? What about your brother? Okay, what about your sister who are now deceased? Well, buy an indulgence. Buy them one. Buy, buy a relic in memory of them so that they, can, they don't burn in hell, but rather they go to heaven. 
Now, how, how practice was this in, um, in the 16th century, even before then? Uh, Dominican um, salesmen, and I don't, mean, you know, I don't mean DR, right? I mean, <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying. Catholic Dominican uh, salesman, John Tetzel, was famous for his sales pitches. And I have a picture of him. He looks like, oh, what would you buy from this guy? Right? I mean, you, I mean you, you never want to buy from this guy. Well, well, this guy was a top salesman in the Reformation, and he would just sing things like, with a quarter, you could liberate your loved one from the flames of purgatory and bring them into the fatherland of paradise. Salesmen would travel far and wide, unloading guilt upon people, telling them of all their sins that they're hiding. Illiterate people who knew nothing more than say, but how do I become saved? I know this seems far-fetched, and I know this seems like this didn't really happen. I mean, I, when I first began to read it, of course, a long time ago, I couldn't believe it. But this is still practiced even in some remote countries today. But this was also the medieval era. The medieval era was superstitious. Gothic images, repetitive chants would be uh, filled in the mouth of uh, monks who would sit around in the streets and just pray, 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 and ask for uh, financial help. Very strange. Our nation values democracy. They saw things in hierarchy. The king, the peasants, and nothing else. Where our lives revolves about nurturing, pampering ourselves, uh, what, especially the monks and Catholics of that time, they believe in abolishing of self, self-harm. In order to get closer to God, you've got to be an aesthetic monk who would, who would hit his back, who would uh, hurt himself to be worthy of the kingdom of God. And why did they do this? Well, because all roads led to Rome. The Catholic Church was the mother church, and the Pope was the father. That's who your father and mother were, the mother church and the father Pope. All this within the Holy Roman Empire. And what that meant is that you were a child of the Roman Empire. There was no escaping. There was no escape from medieval Catholicism. Without a father and mother, you were excommunicated, meaning without the Catholic Church or, uh, or your priest and, and, and looking at the, at the Pope. You were an orphan. You, you were damned. You, mu you had to, you know, just because you had to go to church or you died. Did you know that? But you had to go to church. <laughs> Aren't you glad you don't have to go to church? You come according to the Spirit of God. Well, you had to go to church, but if you didn't, you were beheaded. You were burned. You were considered a witch. The Pope had all the power. He was considered God's holy vicar or agent and was able, watch this, he was able to transfer grace to people. Think about that. The Pope had so much power that he was able, if you had needs, he would transfer grace into that person. He would transfer forgiveness, atoning away sin for every person who would live up to the seven sacraments of the church. If you didn't, you didn't have access to grace. The services were in Latin. Okay? People did not understand anything. Priests did not understand what they, what, what they even read. Priests had multiple wives. Mo I mean, if you read the stories of these priests, man, I mean, it makes the prosperity gospel look decent. Okay? It's really terrible. Children everywhere, but, and all they did is memorize the services in Latin so that they would just do what they were supposed to do. Now, I know this sounds terrible, but, but here's where it gets, it, it's sad and, and, and you know, really makes us go back in time. People were illiterate. People could not read. They didn't have, um, they were uneducated and there were masses of them. The fact that there was a program way in which they could receive forgiveness, you know what it did? It brought relief. They actually loved it. 
They looked at it and saw it as a touch from heaven because it was through the Pope that salvation would come. And so just think about this, that the, um, the emphasis of this road to uh, the Reformation was a road of guilt, was a road that where, where people thought relief came from a person. Relief came from a, uh, as they call it, a trans transferring of grace from the Catholic Church. You can pray it, you can buy it, you can go to church, they can, it can be given to you whenever you want it through these indulgences, and, um, and this can help you with your peace. And so, in light of all that, that brief background that I want you to think about, that's, that's the road to the Reformation. There's so much more that happened 100 years before that that, that helped it, but I, I, as we begin, I want to just say that. But in the midst of that, there was somebody who saw this in the Lord's providence and at the right time and at the right place began to stir things up, right? You guys know this guy, the rebel of the Reformation? His name is Martin Luther, right? Uh, these guilt trips that people would receive, would have, would not be just for common people. These guilt trips would happen to Catholics, Augustinian monks like Luther, who struggled with his guilt for years. Now, add to that that Luther was a peasant, a farmer, a, 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 the son of a farmer, and, and you know what he wanted for his son? To be a lawyer, right? Isn't that what every father wants of his son? Uh, and of course, what did Luther want to do? No, I want theology, right? And he had the brains for theology. And so he was kicked out, of, rejected by his family, and he began to live a life of rules. When to sit, when to bow as he became a monk, when to pray, when to talk, where to walk when to look, how to look, how to hold utensils. There were other issues, right? Letting your eyes wander. Laughing was a sin. Poor singing was a sin. Oh, why, why are you guys laughing? Some people are like, oh, man, I wouldn't have lasted the Reformation. Uh, for Luther, there was no cutting corners when it came to, the, um, to, to salvation, to being right before God. And here's key. Go to, go to uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is a verse that Luther cannot get out of his mind. He couldn't get it out because he didn't quite, and I'll be honest with you, when I came, to, it's Matthew 5, 48. And when I came to this verse very early on in my faith, I also couldn't quite understand what God meant. And this is where it began. And he began praying this prayer and, and arguing with God, crying before God. So Matthew 5, 48, you there with me? I want you to read this. This is important. It says, Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's Martin Luther, bat singing, laughing when he's not supposed to, looking lustfully everywhere. He says, how am I perfect? I, I can't be perfect. The only way in perfection is to continually try to do good. He would pray uh, nonstop. He would confess relentlessly in tears, in agony. People would say that he suffered with anxiety depression, self-harm. If you read his stories, you would just say, this guy needs a therapist. <laughs> he was struggling. Luther's confessions would last six hours. He's, he would catalog his most recent sins before the priest. But, but as he was repenting of his past sins, you know what he would do? He, he, would, he would confess sins that he was having as he was confessing. He would say, I'm sorry for missing chapel because he was confessing his sins. He would go deep into the crevices of memories of his heart and he would say, I repent for everything, every single little thing in detail. So much so that uh, some priests just say, no more confession time for you. Okay? 
And so um, he would turn back and try and try again, purchase indulgences, buy relics, uh, go and, and seek priests and help. And here's how he left them. You ready? And this is one word to, to describe Luther, it, it, unworthy. He felt unworthy. Anybody ever felt unworthy? Anybody felt like that sometimes? Okay, picture that every single hour of your life with no escape. Luther felt unworthy. He came to the realization that all the love that he could give God was still tainted by sin. Think about that. When he saw be perfect uh, as I am perfect, he saw that his love could never be what God is looking for. How can God want my love when my love is so dirty? When as I'm thinking about God's love, I'm thinking lustfully of a woman. When I don't want to read my Bible, how can God think that I'm worthy? And so he was simply not holy enough. When Luther thought of the righteousness of God, he saw God as this holy, transcendent God who does not want sin in his midst. And he was a sinful man. In fact, um, a writer put it this way. Luther saw Christ uh, seated on the rainbow as the judge of the world. So angry the veins stand out, menacing, swollen on his forehead. That's the picture um, Luther had of Jesus. And, and he hated the word righteousness. He could not grasp righteousness means the rightness of God, the holiness of God, uh, the justice of God. He couldn't quite understand it. He, he, would, he would look at it as if God is right and he's holy and he's righteous, I am sinful, unperfect, and unholy. How can there be any connection? That was his war in his mind. And he, he, he wrote this, and actually, this is not here, but I'm going to read it. This is, this is from his journal. I hated the word righteousness of God, because in accordance with the usage and, and the custom of the doctors, I had been thought to understand it philosophically as act of uh, righteousness. As a monk, I led an irre irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt like a sinner before God. My conscience was relentless. I could not depend on God being appropriated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. He hated the righteousness of God. And it was during this time of just searching out his heart that a, that a, a true conversion happened in his heart. And I think, it's imp I think it helps us to read the thoughts of Luther here as we think about the Reformation. And, and he wrote this, and I, have, I think I do have it there. And you can read along with me. Do I lived, uh, and this is some of it here, Do I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. And I was angry with God and said, as if, Indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Here's what he's saying. There are two ways in which God is causing man to suffer. One, your daily life. The fact that you fail your sin today in this present age uh, you know, disobedience of your children, that hurts you, doesn't it? Right? Uh, you know, arguments at home, uh, job, issues. He's saying, all, you know, first, when you sin, according to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, he's saying, when you sin and you fail to uphold those commandments, you end up being hurt. Right? Uh, have you ever hurt, been hurt by sin, by somebody you love? Right? Have, right? We all have. Because sin hurts. 
Not just you, but he hurts who? The other person. And so Luther's saying this, not only is this life suck, <laughs> but we all suffer, and we're sinful, and, and it's just, I don't even want to wake up in the morning, right? I'm so tired, my bodies have fallen, I have a fallen nature. But he says this, but then there's a coming judgment of my sin. When Jesus returns, he's going he's gonna to cast me out in hell. It's a double punishment. So Luther just looks at the gospel and he says, one, I, I can't keep up with what God has commanded, and two, he's going to judge me for it. And so this is where he says, um, uh, this is continued quote, Nevertheless, um, I beat upon Paul at that place, more ardently desiring what St. Paul wanted. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the uh, hated with which I formerly hated the word righteousness of God. <laughs> At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I give heed to the context of this words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He, through, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Go to Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Are you going to read what Luther's reading? Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. So it is in this passage that Luther begins to see that the righteousness of God, it's not a judgment righteousness. That the righteousness of God is not that God is holy and he is going to judge us from his righteousness. But he, here's what he reads, and this is Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. And, and he, here's, here's, here's the passage. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, so here it is. The righteousness of God. The righteousness is not some judgment attribute. It's not that God is so holy and you're so dirty that you cannot come into his presence and you're going to be done away with. No, no, no. By faith in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ, in faith, you're righteous. And it is in the gospel in which this truth is revealed. It is not revealed in the relics. It is not revealed in the indulgences. It is not revealed through any external mode of salvation. It is revealed what? Right? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is this gospel received? In faith. Amen? So he experienced a different God he had communed with. The holiness, think about this, the holiness of God, the rightness of God, the wisdom of God, are not ways in which God is against us. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God, are things that he's sharing with us. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen to that. Right? The righteousness of God is not something God holds over you. It's something He gives you. The wisdom of God, the holiness of God, all the things that He is, He gives them to us as we come to faith in Christ. Forgiveness, um, forgiveness is, is a gift. It is not achieved, but attained by faith, by childlike trust in the person of Christ and in His gospel message. So, the, so, so here's the point. The Christian life is not a struggle with achieving our own goodness. This is part of the Reformation. Reformation was fighting this thing. 
It is not upon achieving your own good. You need to tell it this morning. Every, I, I got to tell myself that every morning. It, I, I, it is not about me and what people think about me and what I can achieve about me. It is about accepting and receiving God's goodness towards us. God does not demand our goodness, but our trust. God does not demand submission to the Pope, but his word. God does not uh, demand long prayers, a, long, a lot of work for you to work for the ministry. That's not what God wants you to do. He wants relationship. He wants union. He wants you to be gripped by the love of his Son, and through which you are justified and made right before God. Okay, so, so this, again, to a certain extent, this should grip our hearts this morning. Because we're people who are prone to care what people think. We're prone to show off our relics, right? You know, we don't have relics today, right? But we may have some religious thing that might make us feel like we have it right before God. Going to church every Sunday. Oh, that's my relic. I pray every day at 6 in the morning. I read my Bible every day. Brothers and sisters, none of those things bring the righteousness of God to you. It is the gospel that brings the, the righteousness of God to us, and he shares with us, all right? So the road to the Reformation, the rebel of the Reformation, again, these are really, I mean, I'm doing some you know, um, injustice here to Luther, but there's some really things that you don't want to learn from Luther, okay? Uh, but I, I'm gonna, I, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna go there this year, okay? Three, the result of the Reformation. So he, he, here's where this sermon, is, you know, we're gonna, gonna bring it in together, is that, the Reformation is not just about some, you know, old monk with a really funky haircut saying, go repent. That's not what the Reformation is about. Not even starting a Lutheran denomination or even about a very special day in Christian history. But it's about what it produced afterwards. Every Christian that would be produced from this place would have one main characteristic. It doesn't matter what denomination it was, even to today. Christians were people who were confident. Christians were no longer submitted under relics, popes, or even government. Christians were submitted under the scriptures. They held this Bible above everything else that they did. And what that did is that, as I mentioned to you earlier, it brought theology of suffering <laughs> right to the forefront. It brought questions of whether or not am I really a Christian. There were people that said, I was already baptized. So why don't I want to be baptized again? Because I, I wasn't really a Christian. And you have the Anabaptists that grew up out of that, right? So the Reformation made everybody say this, am I really a believer? Right? Because that's what it did. And it made us fight for truth. And so this is um, the way Luther summarized the Reformation. I think I do have it there. Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. This is what he said about the Reformation. This life, therefore, is not righteousness but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Amen? Not beautiful? That is somebody that's living at the time where you write this, you're murdered. But that's what he wrote. Now, we, there's so many knocks. We, again, I mentioned some of the knocks against the reformers early on. There's so many more knocks we could say. But at the very least, I, I do want to honor what it produced, the type of disciple it produced. 
the type of churches it multiplied at this time. The Lord was reforming the church by bringing people back to the Scripture and the simplicity of faith and trusting Christ. In a day of big ministry, in a time of really cool video, you know, we do have a really nice camera, uh, and we are doing a promo video, in times of really cool videos and stuff like that, we still come back to the very basics of our faith and what Luther was calling everybody to. The Reformers were the Bible and the Scriptures. And the result was this, a confidence, an unwavering confidence in what the Gospel taught. The result was an awa a wavering confidence in the unshakable confidence of, of, of this book, of the, of the Gospel, and of His grace. And so he, here's, here's the way that worked out, I mean, kind of more uh, practically in, in their theology, was one, they were confident in their salvation. When you brought relics, you were saved. When you didn't bring relics or brought indulgences, you weren't saved. When you brought something to the, po to the priest, you were saved. When you didn't go to confession, you weren't, saved. You, you weren't saved. On and on you went from one side to the other. What the Reformation did is to get confidence in one thing. Salvation is for us. No longer was it a synergistic work where we're coming halfway and we're going to meet God because, you know, we kind of got some goodness in us and God is going to like what we do. We're going to come halfway and then God is going to meet us and say, you know, you're, you're a good person. Why don't, you, why don't you join the team? Not at all. We play no roles. Our works are like filthy rags. Nothing we do will ever bring us close to God apart from His saving grace. But it was a monergistic work. It was God. We're dead in the ocean, deep in the sea, dead. We cannot get up. What does God do? He jumps in, saves us, wakes us up, sends us, brings us over through His Spirit and brings us alive, uh, alive from death. It was no longer salvation. It wasn't something you played with. Does somebody ever, um, I, I was talking to Ellie, my, my oldest, uh, about this, and I, and, I, um, and I told her this. Have you ever seen a parent when a child, I don't know, disobeys in a minor sin or minor things that they do, and the parent go, it's over. I'm not your parent anymore. See you later. It's like, I just didn't put the dishes away. I'm sorry. Nope. It's over. You, you need to, now you need to go to do the dishes, and then you're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your dad again. Do parents, do you do that? Say no, please. Right? You don't do that, right? If we who are human don't do that, do you think our Heavenly Father is going to look at us and go, it's over. I'm no longer your dad. Brothers and sisters, one of the greater, I think one of the greatest um, errors we face today in our confidence in Christ, it is our salvation. It is what the Reformation produced. That God does the work of saving, not you. You can't lose what God has given. He's the author and what? Finisher of our faith. So that's one. Two, faith was no longer a mixture of your faith and relics, certificates of heaven, but it was a passive thing. Here's what we do. You ready? Here's how we become saved. This. You receive. You receive. With a posture of repentance, faith, before Him, you receive Christ. It's not that you accept Christ. It's not that Christ puts these things, that this is why I'm good. Please choose me, John Scofani. Man, I'm really good to you. Choose me. That's not what God does. That's not what Jesus does. He died. He is forever exalted at the right hand of the Father. We simply receive. Now, brothers and sisters, that's such a different view of the gospel that many of us grew up in. 
Luther said it this way, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace, so certain that someone would die of it a thousand, uh, a thousand times for it. How confident was Luther in these reformers? Let me, let me re I mean, this is, I laugh at this statement, but I love it. I love this guy. Okay, here's what Luther said when, uh, when we sin. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit it. I deserve death and hell. <laughs> what a for, for I know who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, I shall be also. Amen. Hallelujah. That, I mean, can you picture that, man? I, I don't know. That, that just makes, brings life to me. There, there were times that, I mean, this, this is not in my notes, but he would say, you're going to sin, Christian? Sin the more. <laughs> That's what he would say. Because there's grace that overabounds. I mean, we're not saying cheap grace, right? We're not, we're not saying that. But I want you to feel the heart that there is no sin that we can commit that God can never, uh, that God cannot forgive. That there is no place as far, there's no place in your marriage, in the way you view your life, that you go, this, no, 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 nobody gets me. This is really, really bad. Nobody can get me out. No, no, Jesus can't. And he always does when we come to him in repentance and faith. And so, to kind of end here, I want to give an illustration that he had that it's really beautiful. And in his book, The Freedom of a Christian, Luther gives a story. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with this, but he gives a story. And in the story, he uses the story of a king and the story of a, marrying a prostitute. And in the story, he uses this allegory of Jesus as the king and the prostitute as the wicked sinner. And he writes this, um, when they marry, the prostitute becomes queen by status. It is not that she was made queen by winning the king's hand. It wasn't that she looked so pretty. It wasn't that she changed through and through that the king would now say, wow, you are beautiful. Would you, would you, could you marry me, right? Can I, can I take you into uh, my palace? She was a prostitute through and through through so so here's what the prostitute is she's both a prostitute at heart and she's also a queen by status luther explained that on receiving christ in true faith a christian is simultaneously sinner for his indwelling adam sin that we all have as fallen creatures but he's righteous by status what has happened as he called it the double exchange the great exchange in which she has her sin and what, is she, what has she brought to the marriage, church? What does she bring to the marriage? Did she, bring, she brought sin, didn't she? She brought sin into the marriage, right? And she gives him all that she has, her sin, her past, her wounds, her, her just, you know, filthy rags. But then all the king has is now given to her, his righteousness, his blessedness, his life and glory. She can confidently say, Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm a prostitute. But guess what? If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I live has not sinned, all that is His is now mine. Amen? And all that I am now is a queen. Brothers and sisters, uh, we need to see that we are no longer in our sin, but we are in Christ. Luther argued that once the prostitute belie truly believed in her status as a queen, her heart will become uh, her heart will change into that of the heart of a queen. We don't, he believed that we don't, 
we don't change a prostitute by, by forcing her to be a queen. We change a, a prostitute into a queen by changing her status, by letting the Holy Spirit do the work from the inside out, not from the outside in. For many people today, Christianity is an outside-inside religion. It's about all the externals that make us feel good, all the things on the outside that speak to us, and then I'm going to change. But rather, it's an internal change that comes through confidence in the gospel. And so here, I'm, I'm going to finish here. And so confidence in the gospel means that confidence in what the Scripture teaches. Confidence in what the Scripture teaches. And for example, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is true. When we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. There is a, short, there is a gap between the holiness of God and our, and our, uh, and our person. But, guess, but look at 6.23 in context. But the free gift of God is eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was confidence in these texts. It wasn't just text that we can spew out, but it was confidence that we have received the gift. Uh, Hebrews 8.12, a confidence in who Jesus was, who God is. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There was a confidence that I'm saved. There's nothing the enemy could do, for God is with me. Who can be against me? 1 Timothy 2.4, God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves people. God, I mean, simple, simple, basic truth that God loves people. And lastly, confidence in salvation, which I, uh, would, I spoke to. And, uh, and we'll, we'll finish, uh, I promise here. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. So there was a confidence in what the Scriptures taught. We're going to submit to the Scripture. We're going to go under the Scriptures. We're going to be Bereans and study the Scriptures. But then there was a confidence, again, as I mentioned earlier, in, the sal in, 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 the salva in salvation. John 10, 28 says this, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one could snatch him out of my Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, you read this? Nobody can snatch you from the hand of God. This is not one saved. This is one of the tragedies of, of what people think what Luther was saying. It is not that once saved, you're always saved. That is not in the Bible. But it is once saved, being continually saved every single day. Amen? Did you know that? That our salvation is a daily, hourly, for some of us, minute-by-minute minute salvation. Every single day, we're continually being sustained by the grace of God to grow in the Word, to grow in prayer, to grow in the pleadings of our hearts, to, to, to grow as a mother, as a father, as a leader, to grow as a doctor, as a nurse. Everything depends upon Him. So there was confidence that God will never snatch you out, not because of anything you've done, but because of who He is. Now this was antithetical to medieval Catholicism, and I would say is antithetical to today. Because we are so confident in ourselves and in what we can do, and how good we are and how gifted we are, and all the things that we could do. And, and I find that alignment with our culture today that we have so much confidence in self that when we think of a God who does all the work, it kind of leaves us like, ah, you don't know. I don't like that. I want, I want something to do with, with this stuff. 
We have nothing to do with it. And that's what gives us confidence. Because we can, uh, he, he will never be wrong. He can't get it wrong. So let me read again uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 as we pray. For um, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. A another translation of that in the Greek is, I am confident in the gospel. I am confident, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written. And would you say this with me? The righteous will live by faith. My goodness. By faith. What are your relics? What are your indulgences? What are the externals? What are the things that make you not have convictional, a convictional life over this book? What does your past say about your understanding of God? What is it that you're holding that you're so proud of that you're saying, I can do it by myself. I can bring myself to God. I'm going to be totally fine. God, I got it. Don't worry. What the reformers were fighting was a confidence back in this book, in the gospel. Would you pray with me? That we may be a people who are bold and humble and Protestant.